Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. This is uh, Rob coming to you live from an undisclosed alpaca farm somewhere in central Oregon. Um, <laughs> that's That part's true. Uh, tonight, we have a special episode. We've got two guests tonight uh, because we're good at scheduling. Uh, and here, here we are. Uh, so our regular cast, uh, Catrice is joining us tonight. Hi, Catrice. Hi. <laughs> And Cavoir is here tonight. Hey, Cavoir. Hey. And Mark's here with us. Hello. Hi. And we also with, have with us tonight uh, Felix Isaacs. Hi, that's me. Hello. And Mitch Moore. Hello. Hello. And uh, we're going to talk about exploration RPGs because it's something that uh, it comes up a lot as a design topic, and there's a lot of ways of addressing it. And uh, um, so we're going to talk about uh, how these guys address it, how we each address it in our games, and uh, go from there. So um, let's do a check-in uh, with Mitch on his game, Ashes of the Deep, because he's been working on it. And uh, we interviewed him about Ashes of the Deep uh, oh, a while back. So, According to our SoundCloud, a year ago. A year ago. Oh, wow, almost exactly a year ago. Cool. Well, it's check-in time. So. Yep. Just uh, how much of the game have you thrown out at this point? And is, is, is it as much as mine? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a simple answer. Yeah, there really is. <laughs> um, let's start with... Uh, well, let's, let's see where you were a year ago, Mitch, with uh, a- Ashes of the Deep. Um, and uh, how's, that, how's that come along? So last time we talked, um, I was going into... Uh, I think it was... I was going into Grand Con, which is a, a convention, gaming convention here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I had a bunch of playtesting lined up, which is basically a whole day of uh, uh, different people who had never been exposed to the game uh, signing up to play the game. And it was the first people that had played it that I didn't know. Um, so that was uh, good. It was certainly interesting. I mean, I had a lot of... Uh, it's just different to teach people who had no exposure to the game whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. and te- teaching piece obviously was uh, a challenge in some ways because I, I quickly realized some of the things that I was trying to teach just didn't um, really, people couldn't grasp them. Um, some of the things were a little more complex than I kind of planned. So it's hard, you mm-hmm. know, when you have people that are your, your friends and right. uh, family play the game. And they kind of like will give you a little more grace about, oh, okay, like, well, I'll just trust them that it'll kind of work out. And then we play the game. (laughs) When people don't know you and they're just signing up to play a convention game, granted, they know it's a play test, but still they're, they're like, well, I want to understand like, why does this thing work this way? So, (laughs) so uh, it was good in that regard. Um, Definitely. I, I enjoyed that. You know, I got to feel like, okay, yeah, the, uh, the interest is there in terms of uh, world and um, was trying out some of the exploration mechanics uh, specifically, um, which is kind of poignant. But um, yep. so that part of things w- went really well. Uh, but the main thing that like really started to grind to a halt is when we, um, it is a, you know, Ashes of the Deep is, is a crunchier um, game, certainly. Mm-hmm. But at that time, it was probably, uh, I wouldn't even say probably, it was certainly more crunchier than it is now. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like I was at the point where like the hit location chart was a thing of beauty visually. Um, <laughs> but, oh, and, dear. 
Yeah. <laughs> and if you knew how it worked, man, it was super great. But the problem was, is if you're introducing to people for the first time, they're like, whoa, dear heavens, like, what is this monstrosity? Um, so, and I realized there was a point in my, uh, at the third playtest of the day where I was explaining it uh, when the people, when they got into combat, because I was, you know, trying to do things slowly, break into it slowly throughout the day, uh, throughout the session to kind of, you know, build in mechanics as we go rather than just lay everything out in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And when we got into combat, I was describing it. And one of the guys uh, that was playing, he, he was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So he, he just like said like oh okay so i rolled this and so i got that so this is what i get like damage wise right and i was like exactly and in my head what i was thinking was i can't believe that he got that on the first time like i've never had that happen before <laughs> and then and then it hit me like a stack of bricks that this is actually a bad thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it was a moment of uh, clarity that you know was a little a little painful to be sure um so uh, the next i basically like when that session ended i went to uh dinner with another designer friend of mine and i kind of just like hashed out a um a much simpler system that i was like well uh, i'll see if this you know this is like super bare bones like if this is kind of if this will work mm -hmm. um and at the very least that it'll be you know less of a hindrance to the um to the session and it was not great by any means but it was still um light years more playable than the uh the more detailed version so i basically like stripped it down to a, the bare essential of like like this is uh, it's a hit location of sorts system but it's way more basic and i kind of stripped out some of the the stuff that was flavor because i mean a big part of it was really having um a structure to see like how these to see how it looks because obviously a lot of it is um it's really trying to like force people to role play and kind of have some information to go on um mm -hmm. i know that sounds kind of silly since it's a role-playing game um but it's definitely my experience where you know we we can treat them like computer games where we don't really just, we just have the generic character so right um, so in any case i uh, then I play tested that I, at a local group that I participate in. That's Grubs. Um, it's a game design uh, focus group, not RPG focused in general. But mm -hmm. I brought it to that and like that the latest version, just to see like, okay, is this closer to what I'm looking for? And then some of the guys that played it had played it, played it previously, and they're like, yeah, I mean, this is definitely more playable. But they're like the you know, hit locations, like, you know, it's been done a lot of times and mm. not great. The other system, like, it did add something, but maybe, like, somewhere in the middle um, is where you need to be. So I, I spent a good um, a good amount of time after that. I think I pretty much got burned out around that time as well. <laughs> okay, I need to take a step back and, like, get some perspective. So I focused on my, um, my card game, Goblin Pileup, instead. Mm. So... I worked on that for a bit, and then, and then about uh, uh, around the time that like the COVID stuff started going crazy, um, lockdowns and the like. That's when I like was like, okay, well, I've got a little more time right now. I should kind of get back to it. And so, mm -hmm. um, I've definitely been uh, progressing along and um, have stripped out a fair amount of things. I, you know, I. 
is laughing as a uh, going on the RPG design uh, subreddit and someone was saying like, what is your darling mechanic? And I was like going through in my head, the mechanics that I currently have. And there's like literally like one thing that is exactly pretty much the way it was from the first version I had. It. <laughs> right. <And that's> it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we've all had like problems like that where it's like, Oh yeah, we look at a game a year later, and it's like, oh yeah, I tossed everything at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so. I, I don't look at my games a year later. I just write a new one with the same premise. Uh, anyway, <laughs> 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 I'm not that feeling too. It's like, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not really happy with how this particular mechanic works. Time to start from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Technically, yep. you've done the same thing then. Yeah. yeah 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 mitch and i are like on the same track as far as like our creating our game like ashes of the magi and ashes of the deep are on like this parallel development structure that we're just like oh yeah a year ago we figured out like oh the game has to be like this and now we yeah right yeah i i really hope that i hope that for all of us and i i do genuinely genuinely believe that at this point that i'm realizing that part of the reason it wasn't good before is because i i didn't really know the like i knew the 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 type of game that i wanted it to be but didn't mm -hmm. know how to make it that kind of game and mm -hmm. by designing it enough and playing it enough it's like oh you know this is closer to the kind of game that you know, I want it to be, but you know, and I'll play other games. I'm like, oh yeah, this this does you know this thing. And I'm like, oh okay, this is this is more like it. So it's it's that uh, learning how to design part that makes me design a lot of crappy games, which will, <laughs> you know, theoretically end up with uh, a game that's actually um, pretty good in the end. Yeah. Well, you have to have the crappy games to get the good games in the end, especially when you want to innovate on mechanics. Like both both you and Felix are working on games that have this unique exploration element that you're trying to tackle in different ways. So I think mm -hmm. you're 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 bound to to run into the issues of like this isn't doing exactly what I want it to do. How do I get to that feeling that I'm aiming for? Right. What I wanted to say is we should probably have Felix exploit his game again and maybe we should mention that it fully kickstarted at oh what was it? Something like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats, uh, man. Yeah. 135,000. Woo! <laughs> you are officially the most successful Kickstarter we've had on this podcast. Oh, wow. That's uh, okay, cool. I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Wow. Good for you. Uh, Congrats. Yeah. It's, thank uh, you. it's, it's, it's um, great. And the games, the games deserves it. It's, it's really good. I'm excited to get my copy. Well, so, I mean, I enjoy it, but I'm a bit honest. Yeah. It's it's uh, so the way you handle exploration in, in Wild Sea is uh, oh, yeah um, you have this journey track. Do you want to tell us yeah. about it? Yeah, please. Uh, I, I can if you like. Yeah, um, it is a uh, so the Wild Sea. If if you didn't catch the the previous episode I was on, which was like a what a month ago I think mm -hmm. roughly, um, is a, a game where you, uh, you your characters are wild sailors. Um, the world has been covered by a vast treetop sea, and you you take chainsaw proud ships or various other kinds of ships, but all ships made to move through leaf and branch rather than water, and you take these ships out onto the the rustling waves and kind of chart your own courses from place to place. There's a lot more to it than that, but journeying and exploration is a big part of the game, and. Uh, 
it, it used to be back, as Mitch was saying, back in back in the old days of the early system, exploration was a, a way crunchier thing than it is now. Uh, hex grids were definitely involved. Uh, <laughs> and like, I love a good hex grid. Don't get me wrong. Hey, I mean, <laughs> listen, it, it, it's it's a feature of RPGs that it's there for a reason. Like, people love a hex grid. Yep, there's just something yeah. about hexagons that yeah. just make them the best shape. Everything. <laughs> it's because um, they're all equidistant from each other. It's so satisfying. And it looks so it looks so futuristic. Yeah, uh, it makes me feel like I'm playing in the future. But yeah, so hex grids were involved, um, and and now they're most definitely not. Although. Uh, mapping is still potentially a part of the system, just not a hard-coded part, really. Uh, yeah, exploration in the Wild Sea is is very much a, a a simple mechanics plus more complex narrative thrust kind of affair. In that there's um, things to do on the ship, things to do as you move. Movement itself in most games, especially in one shots, is theater of the mind uh, rather than having to note down exactly where you're going and what you're doing. And you have an end goal in mind and a, a certain number of uh, moves, essentially, you have to make to get to that end goal. But what you encounter is, is very much up to a combination of the luck of the dice, because people do love luck, including me, uh, and the, uh, the charts and whispers and various resources and drives of the people on the ship and the choices they make. Um, I could go into to more detail, but I feel it's, you know, best to, to compare and contrast things so yeah uh, mitch i'd love to know what you do um well you're gonna love it because it's uh it's a hex grid <laughs> <laughs> it's the best shape that's right i do tell my students pretty frequently that uh hexagon is my favorite shape so um yeah it's uh it's it's you know it's generated as uh as people explore the world and uh as your characters you know kind of go out from their settlement um and it's uh i have kind of worked to um do some of like the the charting in terms of like making it so like oh certain terrain kind of maps i mean it, i suppose uh i've always One kind thing. of been Oh yeah. Let me back up for just a second. Explain the premise of your game. I don't think we got there. So Ashes of the Deep is a uh, a science fantasy um, RPG where uh, you play uh, the survivors of a um, a recent apocalypse uh, where uh, basically aliens had come and seeded this world and um, out of the out of the deep uh, came the deep gods, which are um, uh like skyscraper tall creatures that uh kind of ruled over the peoples and um and in time the peoples kind of some tried to rebel and it led to the uh the end of the the deep gods and um then the the aliens left and um the people are basically picking up the pieces of the uh the apocalypse that uh, came about because of that, and uh, using the relics from the uh, the aliens to uh, to try to rebuild civilization. Um, that's pretty much the gist of it. Cool. So your exploration now. Uh, ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, the exploration is uh, exploring, uh, and the world is covered in uh, 
I guess the important part too is that uh, when this happened, the uh, the deep, which was the uh, uh, terraformed landscape um, that was uh, underneath the uh, the uh, the alien ship, uh, has ex expanded over the entire planet, and uh, it's completely altered. Like all the plant and animal life uh, has changed, and um, the uh, the planet is covered in this uh, mist that. Uh, waxes and wanes, but it's always present. And so exploration is an important part because that's how you um, find supplies <laughs> to grow your settlement. And um, obviously it's uh, the ruins of the past are around, but it's uh, it's difficult to find things because it's not easy to just map something because you can't see far off distances. Mm -hmm. um, so you're kind of like, as you uh, go into an area, um, you you know the GM is rolling to see like what uh, what terrain is going to happen is near them because um, you can start to see the terrain shifting and then uh, there's some charts that kind of give you some a foundation of what that terrain will look like and uh, it's based somewhat on the current terrain rather than just like I don't know I find like a lot of the times a lot of hex crawls you find that you're like uh, in one spot you're in a desert and the next spot you're in a mountain and the next spot it's a forest and it's just like kind of you know, it doesn't really match uh, experience mm -hmm. with reality. So, so based on, so you have something like, you know, if you're in a forest, then the next hex is going to be percent chance to be forest is going to be higher or mountains yep. or, yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I like that idea of gradation. That's really cool. I'm just going to guess very different exploration mechanics. Yeah. Each one kind of lends itself to a very different style of play, which I think is mm -hmm. exciting. Like both games have ultimately a similar concept to what you're you're trying to get at where this is a sense of mystery and exploration and and discovering something new um but each one has its own sort of flavor for what kind of experience you're getting out of it. the the question for me is what um what drew you to this style of exploration for each of your games uh yeah i can actually condense it down to a single sentence okay i played dialect Mm. <laughs> yeah interesting yeah because dialect has i mean it's nothing to do with mapping obviously right but it's still a game of exploration at its core uh it's exploration of language and culture and everything flows from the thing that came before um you you kind of build up as you go through a game of dialect which mm. is fantastic if you haven't played it obviously mm -hmm. um yeah you you build up this understanding of the world you're in uh mostly through player interaction um and I just found that fascinating. And I've tried to port as much of that over into the Wild Sea as possible, just for a very different kind of system. Um, so the way you explore and find things and discover lends itself to future exploration. Uh, the things you find on one journey can uh, impact future journeys. By getting charts and whispers and various other resources, you can bring in the elements of the past that you really enjoyed into your your future encounters and future kind of uh, trawls across the world. It's a way for players to bring back and evolve what they particularly enjoyed. And yeah, that's that's all thanks to dialect. That's a really interesting way of looking at it because you're you're saying that like all of these different concepts are are opportunities for exploration. All of these whispers are what you want to have players choose which direction they want to go in, not necessarily in like geometric space, but in concept. 
Yeah, concept, tone, uh, the kind of feeling you're evoking, uh, even even something as simple as like dropping anchor and taking time out to talk to your crew, um, right? Because of the way the game is run, because it's it's zero prep essentially, and the the GM's job is to react to what the players are giving them. Um, even even not moving can influence your future journey because it puts the things that you talk about there on the table as things you want to uh, see and experience, and the GM can play off those. I, I do have a bit of a question, because you mentioned that some of what you've built in is to make it so that the players can basically revisit things that they found interesting. Now, there is a little bit of an odd issue with that, in that... If you allow players to basically say, oh, I really had fun doing this. I want to do this again. It, common sense would say that, oh, well, obviously they're going to enjoy doing it again. Not always the case, which is kind of weird when it comes to humans. They always seem to make everything more complex than it has to be. Like, as soon as you have, like... Oh yeah, this is the pleasure button. I press the pleasure button and I get the dopamine over and over and over and then it's like I don't like this button anymore. Yeah, by the tenth time in your board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what mechanics or things have you thought about adding to kind of also nudge them outside of the most obvious thing of just basically not exploring, but actually making sure that they do explore things that they might not think are fun. Uh, well, part of it is in the way that they travel. Um, depending on the, the speed they're going on their ship depends on whether they can scope out a situation or blunder right into the middle of it. And that is weighed against mm -hmm. the, the kind of general condition of a crew and of the ship itself. So when you're in um, kind of uh, good spirits, you always be healthy, your ship isn't falling apart at the seams. Uh, you can take your time and you can kind of use your, your charts and stuff to discover what's around you, bring in those older elements um, that you want to revisit. But there is still, uh, because of the, the pressure, the kind of time crunch, being out on the sea is inherently dangerous. Um, it's a very weird, wild world. Because of that time crunch, people end up forging ahead quite often, which is going as fast as possible. And then that element of randomness enters back in. So while they may, in their in their quieter moments, be able to say, okay, let's steer towards this particular thing, let's bring back this particular concept, let's kind of nudge the game in this direction. When when the crunch is there, when that time crunch is there, they are very much at the mm -hmm. mercy of uh, the dice and of unexpected newness that they're going to blunder straight into and have to interact with in some way. It actually seems like it would actually feel pretty good too so that seems like a really good way to do it so hey thanks no problems it's it's one of those things that um i would love to say i i kind of sketched out the grand plan of this beforehand but i definitely didn't it all <laughs> happened through iteration at the table as we played i mean it'd be nice to say you got it first try but yeah but it would just it would just be a lie <laughs> <laughs> 
Like I, I literally, I literally tried out a new way of doing journeys um, today in a playtest game I ran a couple of hours ago, which was a really oh, wow. fun game. It was a new area of the sea. It was testing out content that's going to be released in a couple of weeks, um, and you know, we it was testing out a new system as well, which is uh, condensing a longer journey down into a kind of uh, montage type journey where you just okay. hit on like the highlights of what you find, and you don't care about marking tracks or making rolls for kind of the ship stuff. It's, it's just, what do you find? How do you deal with it? How does that impact you by the time you get reached your destination? And that was a really fun way of doing things. It definitely wouldn't replace the core journey rules, but mm. again, it added that, that kind of flavor of newness into it. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like, and uh, this is not universal at all, but I feel like I would do that type of journey for heading towards a place they've already been to versus charting new ground but that's yeah anyway. yeah that's that's entirely valid um the way we did it today was that they they went on one uh quite dangerous journey into an unexplored area and then they got a very detailed chart to a reasonably close by place so it's just like yeah i mean you're not going to run into much that's unexpected but it doesn't mean the journey will be uneventful so just here are some things that happen right but then again it's it's a very narrative take on travel mm. mm -hmm. In con contrasting with this sort of hex crawl, right, uh, Mitch, that you've got, so you've got the you have yours are mainly charts, and then you you how does your procession go from the the sort of when you're let's okay so let's for example you're in one hex, what do you do? Is there like scouting? Is there do you what's tell us about like how it works? Oh, to see what the uh, what the surrounding terrain is. You're saying. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or what's the procession for going from like your, or what's your exploration procession, more or less? Right. So you have, um, you have different roles for uh, different party members. So someone will be uh, in the like guide uh, mm -hmm. scout. Um, so the person who's scouting, they basically get to um, uh, roll and see some information about the. Uh, hexes around them. So when you enter a hex, um, you get that as well as just the basic information about the ones that are around it. And then um, depending on um, what uh, what they have in terms of uh, successes, then then they can say, oh, well, or, you know, what about this, you know, this forested hex over here uh, that has the, you know, the blue uh, spiny trees in it? Like what is there anything special that that's notable about it? And then, mm -hmm. it's like, oh yeah, you you do see um, a uh, large black obelisk uh, in, in in the mist, you know, here and there. And so then they can um, choose to go into that uh, hex further and investigate, or you know, get information about other hexes hexes around them. But mm. if, they, if they don't get advanced information, then they just, just kind of stumble into it, and then. You know, they'll uh, uncover what's there, whether it's a, a risk or um, something to investigate further. Hmm. How does your how do you determine? Does the GM determine whether it's a risk or something else, or is that sort of uh, randomized also? So there is um, that it's mostly GM. Um, there is kind mm -hmm. of a there's a range. Um, different things will kind of influence. Uh, what is the risk that's there? So different terrains will, um, it's kind of a, a loose system that is a ref, like a, a number of references to say, oh, well, you know, the forest is more likely to hide uh, uh, 
enemies and um, but at the same time ruins are also like to likely to attract others so if mm. it's a place that has ruins and is a forest then you know you're more like you know it gives you a number of um a higher risk number that you um okay can, can work with that would mean that the the gm doesn't really build the individual encounter so much as they build the map itself and the map determines it if i'm understanding this correctly yeah yeah, they have a couple of options. I mean, you can uh, you can certainly have some things in mind um, because in the end, it's it's all I mean, it's all guidelines, um, and that's kind of how it's phrased when it comes to the person who's running the game. Uh, in the end, they you know they they could have an encounter in mind, and mm-hmm. um, you know as long as uh, as long as that works for their group, then you know by, by all means. But at the same time, it gives a structure. Um, that's a lot of what uh, the system is doing in general is really trying to give a structure for play so that people have enough information to go on because um, especially when it comes to you know low prep kind of games um, to have that structure to fall back on makes it easier to Mm -hmm. run it rather than just to come up with everything at least for me Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of what what everything is there for really like the the description of the the terrain it's not really necessary but it gives people a little better feeling of how to run the world um as well as how to describe you know what you're going into rather than just saying oh yeah it's another it's another forest that you get into yeah it's another forest like eventually you run out of so many descriptions (laughs) right so it gives some different i I like the idea oh yeah thank you yeah Give some different. Uh, it talks about sight and sound, like diff- involving different senses, and it has some uh, keywords throughout that it, you know, can give you to uh, have something to go off of. Mm. I I'm really fascinated by this idea that like, if I was a GM running a, an exploration based game, that I'd have sort of these sets of things that I'd want the the players to encounter to run into. Like I might say, you find the the black obelisk in the woods and it emits a low hum or something. And that might be something that I think could be achieved in either of these games. Um, but the route to getting there is very different. And I think mm-hmm. that that's such an interesting idea that um, the, the way that this like, small concept, this maybe like, side questy uh, option that the players can choose to explore or leave behind is approached in such a different way in each of these games. Um, as to like where it comes up, how the players encounter it, or how they pursue it, I think that's um, that's the exciting part to me is that each one works in its own way, but where where one game feels like it might happen as a um, you you might be heading in a direction and you find this obelisk like off on a hex to the side, another game may, the the other game uh, with Wildsea, you might say that you have this rumor of something that exists in a nearby space that you could go and and reach out to if you wanted, um, but it's up to you to um, to take the journey there. Um, I find that that's such a I don't know cool difference of how these games approach the idea of like what is it that you want to pursue? How willing are you to step out of the the path that mm-hmm. you've set for yourself? to go and, and explore. I think that's, I don't know, that, that, that seems really interesting to me. There's, I'm curious how much of that was influencing you in the design of the games versus was something that kind of came up as a happenstance as you were 
building this? Like, at, at what point were you um, choosing to design your game around that, that method of exploration? I know for my part, uh, in Ashes of the Deep, it started out very um, traditional in terms right. of it, it was not a it was not a hex crawl by any means. Um, and the uh, the point when I realized that it really wasn't working was because I needed um, the world seemed kind of like bland to just say, mm. oh yeah, you travel from this place to this place, and like the space between that was very minimal. Uh, but I realized that for the world to be um, challenging and um, for the for the players to really get their characters and explore the world, it needed to have interesting stuff between each of these like you know set pieces where it's like oh I really I really want them to get to this point, um, which for the like for the convention game normally what I do is I have like a couple of uh, of main locations that they're going to that they can get to uh, a few different pathways to get there, but then the hexagons between those is where they kind of explore. And then I'd say, okay, after you know, after three hexagons, then they're at this place. Uh, but then they can obviously, obviously, kind of go off in their own little ways. But um, it's definitely a lot more fleshed out than originally the way it was. And right. I think part of that was just. Um, I think it's interesting too because I think I don't know I've ever really considered where the journey stuff, where the focus on journey stuff came from. I, I think part of it is the the post-apocalypse kind of nature of the game, like the world itself started out that way. And then I realized that, you know, that part of that feedback loop is gathering supplies and well, the, to get to gather supplies, you have to go out and get them. And mm -hmm. I think I was also playing a lot of, uh, oh, like Banner Saga um, is really focused on the journey, that, yep. that video game. And mm -hmm. that really had an impact on me. Um, Oh, for me, it was uh, Nowhere Profit, mm -hmm. which is also entirely journey-based. Yeah, and excellent artwork, too. Could, could you talk a bit about your approach, Felix, to, to that aspect of where the, where the exploration comes from, of like getting off the course? Yeah, I think a lot of it was realizing that um, one of the earliest iterations of the journey rules involved some uh, quite strict random tables. Mm. and with the, the the kind of the focus of the wild sea being on a, a few big truths and then lots of uh, like world building at the table usually in character as part of scenes i realized that unless i was going to have some incredibly detailed random tables random tables just weren't going to work at least not ones that tell you this is x that you find um right. i could i could specify like you find this kind of thing mm -hmm. but then that puts a lot of um narrative weight on the gm i suppose at that point yes uh because if especially there's random roles going into it to determine things and even more especially if those random roles are open to players or even being made by the players themselves which is the the, the case with wild sea um for, for the players to say okay i rolled this that means we're about to find something like this the GM then has a few seconds to throw something together without really anything to go on. Um, right. And a, a table can help, especially a table of suggestions and, and possibilities and examples can help. 
But again, that's a lot of tables and a lot of page flicking to stay on those tables, which went against the way the rest of the game was made, really. Um, mm. So it, it turned into something that was uh, far more player-driven, uh, or at least player-influenced. And a, a big turning point for me was when I realized that just because air progress on a journey is is marked off on a single track, that doesn't mean that has to be the only track you have. Um, it, it, for example, in, in today's playtest, they had uh, three tracks running consecutively, um, one of which was for the journey itself, their progress to their location, uh, one of which was for risk, something large hunting them and drawing closer every time they slowed down or, or dropped anchor. And uh, another one was for the eventual death of their ship, which was one of the reasons they were out on the waves in the first place. Um, as a, uh, a particular whisper curse tightened around their hull, uh, the longer they, they spent out. Mm. And those, those tracks moving forwards, uh, no matter what you're rolling in terms of um, this is what you're about to encounter, being able to mark off those tracks gives the GM something expected to engage players with right. before bringing in any new elements, which gives A, more thinking time as a, as a kind of base mechanical concept, but B, something else the players might want to engage with, uh, either in a role play sense or in a kind of chasing down the narrative in that direction sense. So it's all about uh, kind of making narrative as nebulous as possible in terms of what you can focus on and having the things that you end up focusing on uh, things that interest everyone i guess yeah, that makes a very large amount of sense and if you well like you were saying like if you have a really strict randomized table like i know that a lot of the old school revival people really really love like their d1000 tables and such my my publisher is one of those types as well he loves tables yeah tables can be really good for certain things but i think you you were extremely correct when you stated that well when you get to a point that you're rolling for what's going to happen and you don't especially if the players are the ones that are rolling for it. You're not given the GM much time to think about what to do. You're basically just dumping it on their lap at the last minute. It's like, by the way, here's like, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a big castle of some sort or yeah. fortress. It's like, why is there a fortress here? I, I, it, um, oh, yeah, exactly. I can actually I can give you a good specific example, I think, as well, um, uh, from said publisher, who is wonderful and has gotten uh, pretty damn good at running Games of the Wild Sea as well over the past month, which has been great to see, because uh, he was terrified the first time he ran it. I hope he doesn't listen to this and hear me say that. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think he did a great job, but he's, he's very self-critical. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where he... He said, as part of his feedback to me after the game, he was like, yeah, I felt very uh, hemmed in uh, by the journey rolls because, like, at one point I rolled, like, uh, they meet a ship and I just, I didn't have an idea for a ship they were going to meet. And I said, wait, were you rolling 
twice on the table, like rolling the, the kind of overarching, the kind of archetype and then the specific thing. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's not how I use it. He's like, how, wait, how do you use it? And I was like, I just roll for like the general archetype of what you found. So like you found something natural. You found something that is of order. You found peace in general. Like these, these kind of massive overarching concepts. And then all of the, the kind of smaller options within those are literally just options. You cast your eyes over them quickly and go, hey, ship, that sounds cool. I've got an idea for that. Uh, but if you don't, something else. It's a big tree. It's a stone. It's a person. It's, you know, it's, it's as open as possible. And if, again, you don't have ideas of your own, you can flip it back to the players. And you can literally say, you find something of order. You find something made by human-esque hands out on the waves. Insert player name here. What do you think that might be? Like it, it, it takes the um, the focus off of you and puts it back onto the players in a narrative sense, which can really help you out if you're stumped as a GM, but also involves them more in world building, which is part of the game. Yeah, it's a little bit of an issue that they didn't realize that's how we, they were supposed to use that tool, though. Yeah, it, it it stems from his love of tables because if you have a table with smaller options and they are arranged in a way that means you probably could roll for them he just grabbed a d8 or a d10 or whatever wasn't it and rolled it but like i've never grabbed right. anything other than a d6 it just happened to be <laughs> a number of options that corresponded to a, a particular amount of dice that you could roll it's one of those things that it's like players and gms tend to just do what they think things should be used like without necessarily reading the instructions. Yep. <laughs> thing is, uh, what's worse is I do the same thing for my own game as well. Like I've I've run playtests with people who have read the rules more recently than I have because they're new players and they're very excited and that's great. Um, but then it means I say something like, "Oh yeah, uh, take a take a cut of one on that," and they go, "Actually, I think that should be a cut of two. And I'm like, "Oh god damn, yes, okay, it should be a cut of two. <laughs> Uh, I have a question for both of you. Uh, you both mentioned like gathering resource. Well, Felix and explicitly mentioned it. But you both mentioned like resource mechanics. And how do you? How do each of you think that having how your resource mechanics tie into how you do ex exploration? Do each of you have some words to say about that? This was a more coherent question when I started talking. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So the the overall question was something about resources. No, the, the overall question is how do how do your resource mechanics tie into how your exploration works? Gotcha. I'll let Mitch grab it. Uh, yeah, the resources are a really important part. So, um, obviously, one of the uh, in terms of exploration, um, generally you're kind of picking a direction that you're going on. So when you when you leave your settlement, it's it's sparked by an event. And usually that event is going to have resources at the core of it. Um, so, you know, your, your settlement is like dangerously low on food. And uh, you know that um, like through uh, people that have been traveling and the like, you find out that, oh yeah, there's um, a, uh, a blooded, which are like the, uh, they're like the, the children of the deep gods. They're smaller versions, but still 
gigantic beasts, and that's the main force of uh, food is. And so you basically go out to find uh, that creature and and uh, slay it to uh, harvest the the provisions you need. But uh, you'll also find um, throughout as you kind of explore the world, the the charts again uh, will reference um, you know resources that are in a place. Um, so certain areas are more likely to have uh, certain resources. So like forests are more likely to have uh, food when it comes to animals and, um, you know, a body of water is obviously going to have uh, water. And um, the other resource that is, you know, typical that people are really focusing on is uh, relics, which are the, the items that the, um, that the aliens have uh, left behind. Um, those are the, the, things that function uh, outside of uh, logic and the magic science combination, and they uh, do wonderful things. So they're the, the main resource people are looking for. Uh, but each of those things tie into uh, um, into uh, like existing as a character. So as you, you don't have um, like typical uh, hit points. So your, your aptitudes go down as you, um, use them, and um, through the dice mechanics, you lose, um, you take trauma, basically, and then you, the way to get back that trauma is based on the aptitude that you're using. So some of them will require f um, food provisions to get back. Some of them will require um, rest and and so on. So uh, those resources you're specifically are getting from the from the charts but also obviously you could have them uh, built in ahead of time as a as a reward for um the event that you're that you're um, getting mm. in your settlement uh it's neat and uh felix do you have an answer for this question well i am i am a big fan of um different resources being used for different things um the the basic resource mechanics for the Wild Sea were actually drawn from a video game. They were drawn from Sunless Sea and its managing of uh, supplies against terror and fuel. And one of the things I, I always enjoyed in Sunless Sea was that that slow tick and turnover of, of the bigger resources and the smaller uh, kind of cargo items you get. But I needed something that was a, a little more abstract. Um, so as far as resources go, uh, in terms of journeys on the wild sea, a lot of the, the ones that you use have a very narrative slant. There's whispers, which are uh, living words that kind of bounce around in your skull until they're spoken and there's charts. And neither of these have particular qualities. Uh, they are just names, uh, names with no explanations attached whatsoever. Uh, you could have the whisper sunset under branches and you could have like a copper colored chart or scratches on a piece of bark and to discover new places as part of a journey you combine these and uh, you, you kind of explain uh, as a group or to your group depending on how you're playing um, what they mean that you find mm. however in terms of actually keeping the journey going in a more mechanical sense Resources don't really come into play that much because one of the, the kind of 
I say problems like it's a bad thing. It's not a problem, I suppose. It's, it's more of a feature. One of the features of the Wild Sea is that things like food and fuel are abundant. I mean, you're in the canopy of a massive world forest. It's not you're going to run out of food. There's always going to be fruit that you can pick, animals you can hunt. Um, so resources end up being used for things during the journey, but rarely for base survival. So I guess that's that's why the mechanics moved to that more narrative slant. It's it's not what you have to do. It's it's what you want to do. It's what you use your resources for generally. Hmm. Well, let's see, resources are like a, the reason why I brought it up is they're very uh, like you're constantly losing and gaining them at an extreme rate, and you're constantly yeah. engaging with what they are. At least in most games that I've played. Yeah, the, the world sea, it really does kind of split a lot of your character stuff down a really, really hard dividing line. So you've, you've got like aspects, which are, uh, you've only got a few of them, and they are essential to your character, and you cannot lose them. It is just a, a, a part of the rules, a part of the fiction. These things are yours. They can be damaged, they can be uh, broken, uh, they can be taken away temporarily, but like you will never lose that thing unless you elect to you to kind of lose it yourself. Um, whereas resources are the complete opposite. You pick it up and it could be gone in the next scene. It, it could deteriorate on its own. It could be kind of smashed apart by a kind of other damage you take. Uh, it could be used to, to make something else or combined into something. Resources are very, very fluid. Hmm. Because it seems like your economies were in pretty large contrast, so I wanted to ask about that. Well, it's interesting too. Uh, I I think that I don't think I really thought about it at this point until now. How because um, you're talking about permanent aspects, it's interesting because I don't think I have the only things of mine that are persistent um, in Ashes of the Deep is the things that are in the settlement because you're building. Um, you are rebuilding uh, a civilization of sorts. And so you have to kind of decide which resources you're going to take from your personal stuff and put it into the settlement as well as what to keep for yourself so that you can survive when you're out um, in the deep. Um, so, but basically anything on your person, everything is like super temporary. Um, mm. Even the, uh, the powerful relics, you know, the typical ones that you'll find, um, if there is really a way to say they're typical, but the the more common ones that you'll find are one-time use. So they'll do something great once, but then it's uh, scrap after that. That's a lovely idea, though. Yeah, it is kind of an interesting idea that you've basically got resources which are all temporary, but you can transfer them into being more permanent. But the issue is, if you sacrifice too many of these to be permanent as part of your settlement, you may not have enough to actually survive in the short term. So it, it's very much that short term and long term dichotomy, like you actually have to take. It doesn't matter if it's like, oh, this will totally be useful in the long run if you do not make it to the long run in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> I always yeah, have problems really cool with that idea. balance myself. <laughs> are you the kind of person that never uses ethers in video games <laughs> yeah. uh, yes i will i will i will lose with 106 phoenix downs in my inventory yeah <laughs> <And just, just laughs> 
<laughs> I'm out of MP. I'm low on HP. It's the final battle. But I really shouldn't use this elixir. What if there's something else coming around the corner? <laughs> <laughs> there's a fix for that, but it's really complicated to cover. I think the the uh, the flow of it works really well. Um, as is the deep, because then obviously you also can't just stay in your settlement forever, because you you have to go out and explore to get uh, more more stuff. So it's going to keep that loop going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it, it really suits your your theme well too with the post-apocalyptic feel of like hanging on by threads. Whereas I think with uh, Felix's game very much about identity or about what it what it says about sort of the, these these characters these personalities which i think is a yeah. very different take that you get from what resources mean for that game context mm-hmm. yeah the world sea is is post-apocalyptic but it's not an apocalypse of right. um, want it's an apocalypse right. of plenty i guess there is mm-hmm. there is too much there is more than enough to go around there's not enough to go around. It's just all trying to kill you. So you know. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like the. It's like the kind of like. Yeah. Can you get whatever you want from this world? Essentially, yes. Will you get whatever you want from this world without being horribly challenged to do so? Probably not, because other things want it too, and they're bigger and scarier, and they have more teeth than you. <laughs> I have a question I want to ask for both of you, but before I forget, I just realized that there's actually something that came out uh since the last time we talked to mitch which was Frostpunk, which actually is very similar to what he was saying except it's obviously a video game but and an amazing video game at that totally an amazing game yeah. Agreed. yeah yeah so just before I forget about that, did you draw any inspiration from that while you're, you've been reworking on it? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I don't know that I'd say I drew a bunch of inspiration. I actually, I'm pretty backlogged on my video games. Uh, I did literally just beat that game. Uh, I think it was three weekends ago. Um, so pretty late to the game, but I certainly enjoyed it. But yeah, I can I can definitely see some parallels. So. Um, but I was not directly inspired by that one. There's definitely, I've got a long list of uh, uh, inspirations at this point, whether it's video games or other RPGs and the like that have really uh, influenced the world and mechanics. Hmm. I drew some Frostpunk inspiration on some recent stuff I've been working on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where, yeah. Well, Frostpunk is an amazing game. It's one of the mm. few games that I, I sunk. Uh, like a, a good solid couple of days of my life into. Oh wow! Because normally, I, normally these days I have time to play a bit and go. That was fun. I'll come back to it sometime. But Frostpunk, I, I played a bit, and uh, I thought I was doing well. And then the, the first storm came, and I was like, Ooh, "Oh, well, that's okay. That's I'm gonna, I, that's a challenge. I'm gonna come back to that later." And then I ate. Then I went back to it, and then I got past <laughs> the first storm and thought, "Yeah, this is. I've got the hang of this." And then the, the next storm came, and it's like, "Oh no, okay, that was actually a very small storm that first one." Uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I drew some inspiration from Frostpunk for some, some future unreleased content. So thanks, Frostpunk. Uh-huh. Uh, so heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no I suppose technically, yes, this, this is an exclusive. Well done, Flailful. Ooh. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an exclusive in terms of like 
uh, Felix took inspiration from a thing on something, which is not exactly the, the most detailed <laughs> exclusive I've ever given. We'll, we'll still take um, it. Yeah. yeah. But on the topic of video <laughs> games and uh, resources, oddly enough, um, Bastion, the video game, was was a massive inspiration, not just musically for the world seat, although it definitely mm -hmm. was. Uh, but in the way it handles weapon upgrades. I don't know if any of you have played it. If you haven't, yes. you should. It's fantastic. I have it. I've never actually gotten around to playing it yet. I keep meaning to, and I haven't. Oh, such a good game. But the um, the way it handles weapon upgrades is if you've got, uh, I think it's the, the machete is one of the weapons. Um, what you need to find to upgrade it is literally called like something sharp. And I just loved that. I loved mm. it so much because it's so non-specific that it makes so much sense. And I tried to bring that feeling into mm. the wild mm -hmm. sea, especially with stuff like crafting as it relates to resources. It's like, well, I need, I'm gonna make, I gotta craft myself a gun. What do I need? And some games would say, okay, you need a firing mechanism you need, you know, it will go through a list of specific things you need to kind of scrounge up. Whereas on the wild sea, it's like, well, you need something explosive and some kind of tube probably. And then it's right. entirely up to you how you do that from there. Like it could be a, a, a kind of hollow bird's leg encased in metal and some kind of alchemical packets. It, it could be uh, anything, anything that you've got lying around and you want to kind of jury-rig together and go for it. That's, that's a really clever way of doing it because it also fits in with this theme of exploration of being able to kind of take the little bits that you, you have around you, cobble them together, and then you've got something that is a is a memento, I guess, of your journey. Like this yeah. is uniquely yours. And I think that's the kind of feel that everyone wants from that, that concept um, of crafting something hodgepodge, like Fallout style. Um, I, I really like that concept. Yeah, it's worked really well. It, it also, it, it ties into the way you advance your character um, now, or will do soon, given the new playtest coming up. Ah, exciting <laughs> stuff. Mitch, do you feel that you have something that's similar to that, where you're, the, the resource collection that you're saying that you put towards sort of your, your base camp, um, how much is that influenced by the, the journeys that your characters are taking? Um, well, it, did, it didn't until now, but now that oh, I've, okay. <laughs> I've heard about it, uh, definitely uh, I'm all on board. I really love... Uh, I love things that where you hear them like language and you immediately are like, oh yeah, like, of course it does. Like, yeah, you need explosive. You need a tube to make a firearm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course you do. Like wh what else would you need? Um, that that's just like the bare minimum uh, information that I can use. And then I love the idea that as a player, then you are trying to think of like a creative way of like, okay, I got to find something that's like, you know, like a tube. Um, mm -hmm. Like that's, at, at the core, um, it's it's interesting because that's something our, our our games definitely have in common. I mean, obviously, a lot of RPGs are really about creative problem solving, I guess. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's it's definitely something that is now on my list. So another to do item for sure. <laughs> and it really helps mark the journey as well. Um, it is that it gives you those mementos of the past. One of our mm. Uh, in fact, uh, Rick, who is uh, a very common um, GM on the, not very common in a bad way, that sounds awful, a uh, very regular GM on the Wild <laughs> Discord, um, one of Rick's first characters for the Wild Sea uh, started off as like a navigator type and became more of a storyteller over time. 
uh, as he saw more of the sea and had more stories to tell. And he ended up turning his uh, spyglass into a musical instrument. Oh, wow. And it was just, it was, it was a lovely kind of progression of his character from that, that first to that second stage. But it still has the memories of the first. And it's, yeah, it was just hmm. things like that, like happening at the table are what ended up shaping the system around them. As I realized, like, I love the way that has happened. I need that to be part of the rules. Right. Mm -hmm. Going back to the thing about like um, choosing to explore versus not so much choosing more of the, oh God, it's a bear run. Uh, wait, where are we? That kind of concept of controlled versus uncontrolled exploration. Like mm. the question here would be how much do you think like for your particular game do you think it should be like a certain ratio of controlled versus uncontrolled where you lead the players into it or they're basically just shoved into awkward situations or do you think that it's better for the players to choose this ratio or the gm like is it part of the game the players or the gm i guess would be which one do you think should be making the majority of that choice? I don't, I don't think I have a ratio in mind, uh, but I do have a time scale. If either one of the, the two sides of that coin have been in play for long enough, flip it to the other side. Because like I said earlier, people, humans inherently, we get bored of things, even the things we enjoy. And one of the things people enjoy is control. Having control over your journey is a lovely feeling. But it's also a lovely feeling that gets boring if you have control over the entire thing. Um, having the, the GM drive you down a narrative path that you're enjoying, hey, that's inherently enjoyable. But you'll get bored after a while because you'll want to have some, some kind of narrative thrust yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, as, as long as you, you're kind of keeping an eye as, as a GM and as a table, I guess, in general, it's not all up to the GM, it's collaborative. Um, and and you and you flip that coin from from time to time, push unexpected events on them, or give them more control. I think you I think you're doing a good job, but no, I, I don't aim for a specific ratio usually. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. Um, I don't have a, uh, a a ratio in mind. I think that I guess obviously it, it's uh, a good GMing certainly uh, is the best best way to solve that. But uh, in the end. I think that uh, I do have a, a part of it that is uh, player driven as well, because each uh, each character has motivations that they're uh, pursuing, and um, they check boxes on those uh, motives. And then uh, once they've checked all of them, they can't gain any more experience or get the bonus of using that motive until they um, until they do something that is based on their uh, their background, which is a trait. And it's it's always like a thing that complicates things and is a negative thing. Um, so it forces them to um, sometimes do things that are more difficult um, to kind of get back on the pathway of gaining. Um, it's not called experience anymore. Advances. Um, mm -hmm. If they want to improve. Right. It just strikes me as a little bit similar to. Um taking that the idea from burning wheel of having to get so many failures and successes on a particular skill check and just like sort of expanding that out into like character motivation wise instead of like you have to get 
you know, you kind of have to not succumb, but sort of like address the character flaw before you can improve. I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely definitely influenced by the Burning Wheel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the Burning Wheel, Riddle of Steel. Uh, oh yeah. yeah, those are definitely two strong influencers on that. Yeah, Riddle of Steel is one of my favorite experience systems for sure. <laughs> oh, definitely. I've I've never played Burning Wheel, um, which I'm really sad about. But oddly enough, the the kind of three book set of the core Burning Wheel stuff was I think the second role-playing game book I ever, or the second like collection of role-playing game books mm. I ever had, even though I'd never played it. It was just don- huh. donated by a friend who bought them, read them, loved them, and then realized he was never going to play them. So he gave them Aww. to me, who read them, <laughs> loved them, and then never played right. them. I also have I also have like the burning wheel books on my shelf. We made characters for one like one evening and then like my friends were just like I hate this character creation system. Oh. <laughs> and that's as far as we got. <laughs> I was wondering about uh so in Wild Sea, I know that you'd mentioned that it's tracked the the journey in terms of like um I would assume it's like time based or like what's the uh, how is it tracked uh it's event based mostly um the the way the tracks count up uh, or the the main kind of progress track counts up anyway is that um when you start a journey uh, or what, every stage of a journey every kind of leg of a journey uh you choose someone to, to go on watch and someone to set the speed you're traveling at uh the faster you're going the more uh, boxes are marked on the tracks the faster you get to your destination, but again, uh, the more trouble you run into most of the time. And the person on watch uh, rolls to get a vague idea of what's coming up, and then the GM and the other players can can flavor that and uh, either treat it as like a brief encounter, which might involve a role, or even just a bit of narrative as to like how you don't get stuck into something. Or it might be finding something, uh, resources could be coming across information, other ships. You know, whatever else comes up. Um, but it's that that whole thing is treated as like a um, uh, a section of the journey. Uh, so that that choice of like who's on watch and who's at the helm. And then once that section is done, you can switch it up or you can stay with the same people. But that's the next section. And that means that more boxes are being marked. The journey is progressing. Time can pass, but it's an abstract concept. Um, both in game because there's not many clocks around, uh, and out of game, like just because a journey is like say a six track, it doesn't mean it's six hours or six days or six weeks. It is whatever the narrative calls for. Really, it's hmm. interesting. Is is it somewhat inspired by like clocks? Is that- seems- oh yes, you you didn't you don't you you weren't here for the first episode. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is uh, one of those interesting things about the Wild Sea is that a lot of the uh, mechanics got a massive overhaul when I realized that games like Blades of the Dark actually existed. Mm. Because oh, yeah. I've been trying to design in that space, uh, kind of feeling my way around without much of a... Uh, like, I knew I wanted... I want, I want a narrative game, you know, like... Call of Cthulhu was uh, back when I was playing at university because that was the most narrative game I'd ever played at that time. Um, and I was taking inspiration from a lot of video games, uh, Bastion, Sun the Sea, um, that kind of stuff. And, and I was 
getting to, especially um, for Fallen London, they had, ah, uh, was it called the Nexus? Can't remember, but it was the engine that the Fallen London browser-based game ran on. Uh, it was all card flipping and essentially uh, tracks, like numbers slowly building to break points where events would happen or it would unlock things. And I was like, oh, I could, I could use that in place of HP, like a slowly building thing on a track that leads to a break point where your character changes in some way. And then after replacing HP with that, I was like, I can do it for more things than that. And then, you know, a few <laughs> months later, I read Blaze of the Dark and it's like, oh, clocks exist. That's been done. And then I found out that Apocalypse World exists and it's like, oh, no, tracks have been done as well. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah, we all yeah. had that realization at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, like ran across Blaze of the Dark. I was like, oh, I'm, I can stop working on my thing now, but I'm sad a little bit also. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> and I, I but, can't even say it's like, oh, it was Convergent Evolution. It wasn't yeah. Convergent Evolution. It was literally just me being several years behind the rest of the gaming scene. Yeah, exactly. Because I was living in a foreign country and wasn't playing games that anyone knew. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a bad thing, though, because it means that, oh, this is an established concept. People understand it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to introduce something that everybody's Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Like, I had a, I yeah. had like a day or two of feeling really bad about it and being like, well, what's the point of all this stuff I've been trying to do? And then after that, I felt really good because it's like, hey, I know these mechanics work. These things are popular. And yeah, I can't kind of crash into the scene being like, oh, look at me and my new cool stuff. But I can crash into the scene saying, hey, at least these bits of my game definitely work. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sure uh, yeah, I feel good about it. And I would think too that the in my experience as well, I would like to think I've uh, learned some of the, the lessons from games that I, you know, was like surprised that this thing already existed that I was looking for and trying to do myself. But when I find the thing and I'm like, oh yeah, this like New New Zero is a game that definitely I wish mm-hmm. I had known existed when I was first starting out because I've literally mm-hmm. uh, tried to design this the same like mechanisms over and over again. And finally I found that and I was like, really? Like, where have you been? <laughs> yeah, that's when it's like, I just spent the last two years trying yeah. to get this to work. If I had have known this existed, it would have saved me so much trouble. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd like to think that I've kind of learned some of the things about that, though, like, because obviously they were the first ones to do it that way that were, you know, successful. Well, hopefully I can learn from where they are and improve mm-hmm. upon it so that, you know, avoid some of the pitfalls or um, yeah. and the like. It's also one of those things that I, I think is quite interesting, especially in, in terms of like tracks and clocks and stuff, because they are so useful and so versatile. Um, mm. But essentially they are like one of the most basic things you can possibly do. It is just counting a small <laughs> amount of numbers <laughs> yeah. with yeah. a defined endpoint. Like they're, they're not. They're essentially, it, it's nothing more than a really short HP track for an event. Like, it's... Yeah. But the way they are presented and the way they're used gives such flexibility, and I love that. Yeah. There is, there is a lot to be said for a simple idea executed right. incredibly well. Yeah. It's like the same thing when, they, when Fate did the Fate Fractals, and you, you go like, oh, you can make each aspect its own character, and give it aspects and a hit point track, and then it suddenly becomes destructible. 
And then if you need to fractionalize it down even more than that, you can, you can keep going in either direction, you know? And it's, I, I feel like fate failed to capitalize on that when it first had that idea. I mean, I, I remember reading that like in like 2006 or something like that. And I was like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. Okay, so you have this game concept. It's like, here's a character. And the character's aspect, you could actually f- turn it, cur- turn a character aspect into its own character and then turn a group of characters into its own aspect and have this bi-directional um, sort of perspective shift. And they, they I, I feel like... That would have been really useful for me at, at at this point in my career had they like just sort of taken that concept and said, yes, you can do this with fate and it'll blow open your entire thing. It would have solved so many problems had they articulated that in that way for me, <laughs> but they didn't. And it was like, here's the fate fractal. It kind of does this and it's great. And then they sort of p- passed on it and it was kept doing like, here's a character and here's a world and stuff like that. But like they did this really interesting thing. And I don't know. I don't know if they noticed. At least in the first couple iterations, they may very well not have. There's like a lot of cases where you design something, and because you're thinking of it a very specific way, right? You don't tend to realize the full capacity of what it's capable of. Like you're, well, I meant it to do this thing. It's like you could do something else with it. Somebody else right. is going to look at that and be like, "I can break this so many ways." It's yeah. going to be amazing. I, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sound all self-important here, but I've literally witnessed that over the past few months with a single little element of the Wild Sea um, where I just put it in there. It's been there for ages, but like I, I did a little bit of work on it and changed one small thing, and then the player base just ran with it, and it has become the thing that turns up the most on our feedback as like, huh. this is the best part of the game. And it's it's amazing because I really didn't think it was all that special. It, like it's not mechanically dense. It's not anything super exciting. Players have been using it. It's become more and more important, and, and they get really into it. And what is that? Just say this and then oh, not d- tell us. Sorry, no, uh, whispers. That's whispers. Um, oh, the whispers. Yeah, the, the, the living words that kind of bounce around your head and affect the world when spoken. Because uh, right. originally they were a a meta resource. Um, you could affect the narrative but it was just you as a player saying oh i think it would be cool if this thing happened mm-hmm. um so they were and they weren't originally called whispers they were something else echoes or rumors or something else i don't know it's been a while um but then uh, about four months ago in one of the the, the play tests just as we went into public play testing properly for the first time mm-hmm. um i was playing a game with uh, rick and ryan who are both wonderful and I said, uh, when, when Rick's character, uh, or when Rick wanted to use a whisper, I was like, how does that look for your character? It's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, imagine like the whisper is like a tangible resource in the world. How would that look? And he was like, oh, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd whisper it. Or maybe it would like force its way out of me because like this is the right time for it to be spoken. And I was like, yeah, that's really cool. Um, <laughs> Wrote it into the core rules for the open play test. Is like whispers. Yeah, they're living words in your head. They bounce around. They're there. They they want to be spoken at the right times, and they affect the world. Um, and yeah, people just ran with it, and I love mm-hmm. it. Amazing. That's that's so funny. That's actually like almost the premise of like one of the other games. We had uh, parcelings is kind of like that, where it was like yeah. the words are sort of like these alien things that infect people. 
Like that's, yeah, it, 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 I, yeah. I was I was very interested to learn that uh, directly from Leo from Parslings because he yeah. is now our layout artist, and I think oh. I can say that publicly. Oh, cool! Yeah, Leo's really lovely. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, in the in the earliest days of the Wildsy Kickstarter, he was one of the first other designers to reach out and say like, "Hey, you're doing really well. Uh, good job. Uh, you need to focus on this, this, and this." Because he was running, uh, finishing off Parslings at that point. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, he was. He's just a really lovely, lovely person. Yeah, we've had him on a couple of times. He's great. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about their games in specific because they're very good examples. But uh, does any? Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about generic exploration in games. Sure, let's do it. What makes a game about exploration rather than having exploration in it? Where's the distinction there? Uh, I think it is one of my favorite. Keywords, buzzwords, everything words uh, for everything I've done. Uh, narrative is the narrative. If exploration is merely a component of the game, it is there in service of most probably the wider rule set, uh, but not necessarily the wider narrative. It is there as the thing that happens, but maybe doesn't drive the story. Whereas a game about exploration, the exploration should tie not just into the mechanics, but into the basic narrative structure of the game. That's my own personal listening. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's a one of the things that I had a problem with. So, in in my experience, I, I played a uh, I played an OSR game for uh, like nine sessions, and which was ostensibly about exploring a mega dungeon. Hmm. And none of what we were like there was it didn't feel like that's what the game was about at, at any point. It was. It, it felt so much like this is a means to an end, but everything is about it. And it, it's the kind of way where it's like D&D &D is supposedly about being heroes, but everything's about combat and getting money. So even if you're trying to be like this group of, of heroes, you st the adventure still assumes you're going to be killing monsters and taking their stuff. No matter how, how, uh, how much your motivations may disagree with that in, you know, in in from the perspective of your character sheet to the game, there's certain top down things that is it's assumed, and so like to to make a game about exploration, you would want to have the motivations of the characters be exploration focused at at, at the very least, I would say, because then then that's what the game is supposedly supposed to be enticing the players and the characters at the same level. I would say that's that's that would help a lot. Uh, you know, something I noticed, and you know, something that's in, um, like, w when the way Riddle of Steel did it with with their experience system, like they the players got to say what the game was going to be about in that way because they got to um, dictate what they were going to get experience for doing. Um, and so, I think to the extent that a game does that, I think it's probably about exploration. Like, if 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 it lets the characters be motivated by exploring things. I think you can make the game about exploration despite whatever else it'll do. Um, because the story will eventually, will, the narrative will have to involve that, right? Because that's what the characters are just naturally pursuing. Uh, yeah, so there's actually a quote, and I forget who said it, but it was basically one about, that basically said, if, your game does not have any mechanics that support something, then your game's not about that. Right. Hmm. 
And I think you could actually expand that a little bit further and say that I think that if you can play the game and remove that aspect of it and it doesn't play any differently, mm-hmm. especially if it doesn't have any mechanics that support it, mm-hmm. and then it kind of can't be about that. It has right. to be, this is not just something that's in the game. It has to be, the game itself won't run properly if you're right. not doing this one thing. Yeah. Yeah, like Torchbearers about like exploration, but only in the sense of like how much stuff can, how far go, deep can you go and then how much stuff can you get out? But it's, but it's really focused on that one thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, no, but in like both of these games like mm-hmm. that we're talking about tonight, uh, both of them have the effect that you can't really just sit at home and wait. Right. Like you can't, you can't do it. It's it's non-functional. Like the game doesn't work with that. You have to either take your ship out exploring, or you have to go looking for these alien artifacts or other resources to build up your town. If you mm-hmm. do not do so, right, the game just falls apart. It's not just it falls apart. Like you basically reach a fail state immediately. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely sums it up really well. I think that I think I had mentioned earlier that there's a lot of games that the the exploration, the journey part of it is is just like the fill in between scenes, mm-hmm. and those are the games that they they have uh, exploration. You know, it's it's there sometimes, but it's not a core component. Right. Yeah, I would say that's the case for my game where I have exploration as a thing, but it's definitely not where my thrust is. You know, it's just something you can do in service of the what are probably your broader goals. Although I suppose the characters could make exploration there's like one of their central things. Um it's just not there's not a lot of <clears throat> I don't have a lot of mechanics that are focused in that direction. So um if they do it, there's some sort of stuff that happens, and there's a way you would generate the next region over. But it's not the type of game where it cares about like what's what's here or what's between these two regions. You know, it it's sort of assumed that there's either going to be something that's really significant that's either already part of the story that's between the two regions that's stopping you from that's making that a problem. You know. Or it, we can gloss over it, and you can get to the thing that you actually care about. So it's it's in that way. Like I don't really have an ex. I, and it's weird because I actually had an exploration mechanic um, in in a previous version, and it's it's since I don't know. I don't. Wow, I don't actually remember what version I last had it in, but it's been gone for a while. Where it was kind of like it had a hex crawly component, uh, and the more the more the game turned into this other thing, like the less, the less that was needed. It was, you know, so, and so I guess that those mechanics just got stripped away as, as I, I've been slimming the game down to do its, to do its thing. But yeah, it, it, it's interesting because like, I, you know, you guys have these two games that have 
this uh, where an exploration is, is is central, definitely. And I've got this post-apocalyptic game where <laughs> where it kind of doesn't care um, about exploration. It's it's not that interested. Uh, yeah, it's it, I'm, it's it's so fascinating because we have like especially Mitch and I like have. So there's like one of the reasons we we uh, I, I even got you on in the first place is because like you had mentioned something about Ashes of the Deep and I'm like well, I got this game called Ashes of the Magi and like we, as we started talking about them we're like okay this is the same this is the same I've got this fog I've got this mist I've got you know the blah 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 and uh, there was so much like I wouldn't even call it conceptual overlap just like thing overlap but we use our stuff it, it's to- the games are totally different there's like right. Even so, those there's some, some some shared elements like what we're doing is is different, and then you know the the whole wild sea thing. I've I've got this you know one of the areas in my game is like this giant overgrown forest, but it's just one place, and it's just because you know vegetation magic went nuts there, and all the trees are now a hundred times the size they were, and they just toppled over because gravity is still a thing. So it's just this massive forest of collapsed trees that's you know two orders of magnitude too big uh and it's well i'm always there for big forest well uh, you're 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 welcome to let's i can i can situate the wild sea just in there and just why not you know (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no but i I love the way different designers take different elements and are just skewing them towards their particular honing them in on what their experience they want to have the, to deliver to the players. It's one of the things I really enjoy about modern game design is that so much of it is sort of like honed down into this like dagger point of like, this is what the game's about and this is what the game's going to help you do. And it's going to be really fun when you do it. And if you try and, you know, it, it, whereas I think a lot of games previously were like, here's a rule set and a sandbox yep. and you can do anything. Yes, ninety percent of the rules about combat, but you can do anything. <laughs> I have a thing. I have a thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which relates so much to this, and it, it just brought back a memory. Um, and I think it's an important memory. Mm. When I was about seventeen and getting more into Dungeons and Dragons, uh, maybe eighteen, nineteen, whatever, but like that kind of age, right? Getting more into D anD D, three, three point five. I bought and read a lot of uh, source books and like expansions, splat books and things. And mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, but like the, I enjoyed the character building and the role playing. I didn't enjoy designing stuff. Uh, like that was not my headspace back then at all. Mm-hmm. And then I read one particular book uh, called Dungeonscape, which was a 3.5 oh. expansion. And it completely changed the way I thought about uh, dungeons in general. But also, uh, like designing the structure of something that people come across in a game uh, in a kind of wider way, mm. because Dungeonscape was the first. And this is—I don't want—I don't, I don't want to kind of dog on all the other three point five writers. They did a great job. Three point five was a really fun system. Sucked up my social life for years, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, mine too. Yeah, had its yeah, exactly. Had its faults, but then what doesn't? Uh, but like Dungeonscape was the first book where I read it and it didn't just say like, this is what you should do. It told you, this is what you should do. Here are some really good examples. This is why you're doing it. And this is why this makes sense. 
Like it, it turned dungeons mm. from a, a place that holds treasure into a place where you should think about the ecology of this thing. How would it really be in a real world? Like, how does this place live? How does it function? And it, it just changed the way I thought about the whole thing. And it, it really enriched my experience. And I think that those lessons from that book, even though it's, you know, 3.5 is, I would say long gone, but I'm sure there are still tens of thousands of people that play 3.5 every week. Oh, tons. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, even though it's, it's in the past, I guess, that particular part of it, mm -hmm. like that, that thing still holds some sway over me, the lessons I learned from that book. Right. So whoever wrote Dungeonscape, big thumbs up. Actually, I can look that up. <laughs> I think an important part of that is that there is a willing suspension of disbelief for like players when they go into a dungeon and it's like, oh, here's something that only makes sense for the plot device that we're going to use it for. It has no other purpose. Why is it even there? But they'll ignore that willingly. But it's so much better when they see something it's like oh that makes total sense for that to be there it's like why haven't we seen this in every dungeon like of course they need that that kind of mm. thing really does stand out a lot more and it's not just dungeons but like anything in general like anything that you're going to be doing for world building or even the game mechanics themselves when it's things that it just stands out that this needs to be in here and why haven't we seen it before? I think that's generally what you're aiming for, for doing things really well. It's not required, but it definitely helps. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where it's like, um, I, I remember a friend, of, a friend of mine was running a dungeon and we were playing through it, and it's like, you know, you, we were coming across those, you know, almost like the standard array of traps. And when we got to the end, it made so much sense because, like, it was like, oh, the shock and grasp traps were at these intersections because it was keeping the gelatinous cube in. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love that. You know? Yeah, yeah and good. it was, and it was like, the reason those were there, it was like, that was, that was a fence for a guard dog that was basically just a, gar a walking garbage disposal. And, you know, uh, the reason these hallways were so clean and and stuff like this because this thing was and, and, so he had thought out like I, I don't know if he had taken the tips from Dungeonscape that he, he might have um, but there was definitely a rhyme or reason to the way the world worked and that was something that always sort of bugged me about I mean going back to 3.5 that it was 3.5 I mean definitely inspired the early versions of Ashes because it occurred to me at some point through running the game that like the basics like level zero spells in third edition D D immediately create a post-scarcity world and it's the kind of thing where it's like oh geez the implications of that are not taking into account at all like what would a post-scarcity economy in a medieval era look like right and that became part of like that became part of the focus of my game it was like i'm just curious about what that world is like what does it look like when people can just grow like just they can snap their fingers literally and have food and it's okay so you've suddenly annihilated farming as a profession and um you don't care where wells are anymore <laughs> like the water table doesn't matter to you as a society and yeah like there's all these things that are baked into the medieval lifestyle and thus baked into D D at some level 
that the magic would totally turn on its head had had the magic been considered as a fundamental seed of the world rather than like this special thing that's tacked on to a medieval setting and that was just something that insp- like the third edition inspired that like completely indirectly because it was i was curious about like oh what would what would a world with with <laughs> create water as a zero level spell look like um and it 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 turned into an obsession where i was like oh here's a game world that has magic from humans had magic from evolution on like that was just something we hap that did happened to us um rather than some gods dumping it on us at some point uh but it it was just yeah it, it inspired that it, it, and it, i like the way and even new books now like you know like the, the blades in the dark inspired so much just in terms of crew mechanics uh, and the way those things hold a game together in a way where it was sort of expected from other games that you would sort of have an adventuring troop and there would be a group and you would come up with a reason for your group to be together. And now games just do that. Like the game assumes there is a reason for people to be together. Let's define that ahead of time so the game can be about that rather than you know, a jump, like, rather than you having to come up with a reason on the fly for you all to be meeting in the same tavern again, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest changes. Like, there's been mm-hmm. so many changes among just the game, like, the RPG industry in general, but I mm-hmm. think one of the biggest changes has literally just been putting more thought into things like, okay, you all meet up in a tavern and (laughs) now you're working together. Yeah. And almost every modern game gets away from that. And it's like, okay, so there's a reason why your characters are together. Here's like, it doesn't necessarily give like, okay, here's like the actual situation that brings you all together. But Mm -hmm. There's definitely more thought put into these kinds of scenarios. You don't run into the same issues nearly as much like, oh, there's a castle with an open courtyard when dragons exist and are a common threat. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like the thing can fly. Why? (laughs) What good is that going to do? Yeah. Um, nobody, yeah. nobody on this planet has prepared for this eventuality. Nobody. Right. <laughs> yep. You, you say dragon specifically, but uh, the, yeah, they pose a threat. But like half, like the number of flying things that can murder a man in th- under five seconds in D and D is, I don't know, probably fifty percent of the population. Yeah. I mean, yes. quite frankly, it's terrifying to be a villager in, in D&D. Cause you have to... <laughs> I was going to say, if you're a villager in D&D, even if you're in a castle, just throw some cats over the wall and you've got a massive yeah. on your hand. Yeah. Tiny creatures, huge AC. That's cats. Can't beat them. Yep. Yep. Yeah, with, with uh, four attacks, too. Yeah, it was yeah. it 1d3 1d3 minus 1 or something I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was guaranteed to, to take out an elven wizard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you could uh, you it, a house cat could consistently delete an elven wizard 
um, in D and D. That was one of the jokes about it. That was the the bane of Elven Wizards was the the level I don't know challenge rating one eighth house cat. You say that, except it has actually happened in reality as well. Like there was a case where burglar broke into somebody's house and they injured the cat or something the cat just latched onto their face cats are, cats can be vicious it's like this is not what you want a cat to be doing it's like there wasn't a whole lot of face left by the time the medics got there they were not Jesus. <laughs> I, we thought D was just fantasy yeah yeah I feel like we're drifting away from the topic, so does <laughs> I was going to ask um, if the last thing is any mechanics that you're working on currently in your games that you'd want to touch on? Because um, we've, we've talked a bit about it, but is there anything uh, that you can tease the listeners with for your next directions uh, as game designers and what you're working on? Uh, I can take this. Throughout this conversation, I have had my notepad out and I have been jotting down uh, new ideas. By jotting down, I mean liberally and merrily stealing new ideas um, for a potential rework of the journey roles and journey rules, because it's something that has been in the works for a while. The more we've gone on journeys, uh, the more I've been trying to figure out a way to capitalize on the bits that that seem to really work and to bring in uh, more of the the bits that aren't necessarily written down in the rules, but the players have been using again and again and mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. Which is also part of what I've been talking about tonight. Like some of the stuff I've talked about in terms of how we do things in the wild sea is not necessarily us doing it by the book. It's just the conventions that have been built up in the community of right. players uh, kind of shifting from one shot to one shot, playing with different people. So I've, I've written uh, a nice short treatment of, of that, which I can expand on over the next few days. And, Maybe it'll be in the next playtest in two weeks. Who knows? Exciting. Nice. So thanks for all the ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Steal them liberally. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Mitch? Uh, I think that I've definitely got quite a bit out of the, the talk tonight, for sure. The thing that I'm really working on right now is um, the, the overall system. I know I originally when I came on the show, I talked about that it was it started out as a, a generic like universal system, um, and it was called the Edge system back then. And I kind of like gave up on that name because I didn't really. It, the things that made it the Edge system are gone. Um, but I have to give up. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I have recently come back into uh, having that in terms of. Uh, I've always struggled with because it's a dice pool system. I've always struggled with like degrees of success and like mm -hmm. how you know mm -hmm. how one degree of success compared to three degrees of success. Like how big of a difference is it? Um, and like the idea of like really, I've worked in this idea of like edges where there are things that you there are successes that kind of build your momentum um, toward accomplishing a goal, and so. They are not just a part of combat. They're part of every test that you do. So the more that you're progressing in something, um, the more successes you are getting, and they count towards your your total number of them. So in a way, I guess I've realized that I do have a, uh, uh, a similar, uh, oh, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Blades in the Dark and the like, where it's clocks, and it's like, oh, yeah. like So yeah. This, it's something I've definitely been uh, working on so I can 
uh, pull back into uh, oh yeah, there's clocks. So. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, perfect. Uh, I'm I'm excited to see your both of your uh, next innovations and uh, where you take your games from here. So um, yeah, thank you again for coming on tonight and for chatting with us and with each other. And I'm glad that it yeah. was fruitful for you both. Uh, it certainly was for me. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, for us from Flail Forward, Rob, Catrice, Kevoir, and myself, Mark. Uh, and thank you to our two guests, Mitch Moore and Felix Isaacs. Um, so that is it for tonight. Uh, have a good night, and it is always night where you are listening. It's true. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, or not, we're not picky, leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and, uh, and Pornhub. Because why not? Gotta go where your audience is, right? Good night, everyone. Okay. And we're back. I'll edit. Okay. Thank well, God. that part, so that part to, we'll have to edit. We are going to have to <laughs> edit. You are going to have to do some editing because you're going to have to splice two together. I'm sorry. All right. I, yeah, I quick say do... things you have to edit around. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because we won't edit it, but it's fine. <laughs> that's that's design awful. Uh, no, we, we should. I don't know. Anyway. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. It'll, it'll yeah. be okay. <laughs> yeah, to a degree, it's, it's more natural this way. So when people do listen to it, they'll be like, yeah. well, at least they know that we're not hiding anything. Exactly. We want, yeah. we want this to be authentic, and that's, yeah. that's our brand. Uh, this is authentically authentic. our level of professionalism, yes. Right. <laughs> Wait, authentic? What do you mean? You cut out that whole chunk out about me wrestling that bear. <laughs> just, just throw things like that in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it, it works for Putin, right? <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, no. Okay. Now I'm really going to have to actually edit this. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this episode is going to be banned in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> really good now.